0: You know, sometimes life is really hard, difficult, heavy burdens, destroyed relationships, catastrophic health problems, bombarded by temptations, sinful acts and thoughts. Unimaginable disappointments, devastating failures, persecution when we desire to live a godly life. And the list can really go on and on and on. You know, I thought about when I was preparing this message, sometimes. Helga and I are weighed down by the aging process. Now, I know nobody else is. And some things are hard to deal with as you age, other things are really funny, but that's another conversation. <laughs> We don't live in, mor- in, in morbidity. We don't, we're not morbid about it all. But sometimes it gets really weighty, especially when you see a friend that passes away, somebody we know, like this week we're going to a funeral of somebody that we know. And, and Helga and I, we, like many people, we tend to look down at the years ahead of us. A couple weeks ago, I preached at an assisted living facility in Plano. And I went up the elevator to go to where the auditorium was. I've been there before. I've preached there before. And three, three women got on with me. All had walkers. And when I went there a few years ago, had, I've gone several times, one of the women that had a walker didn't have a walker at that time. Now she has a walker. And one of, the women's <laughs> one of the women looked at me and she said, she, I said, are, are you going to church? And they, I said, yes. And she said, are you preaching? And I said, I am. And one of the women looked at me and said, do you have anything to say? <laughs> now I like being I that's up upfront. That's right there. And I said, yes, I do. And afterwards, she came up to me and she said, well, you did have something to say. (laughs) But seeing all of that is weighty. Now, people in their 30s and 40s don't necessarily think about that, or 20s, they don't for sure, or teens. But as you grow in age, you begin to think about things like that. I read an illustration about... About spatial disorientation with pilots and the reason they have instruments is when they lose sight of the ground they can lose sight of going up or going down or whatever it, the whole space changes and they think that's what happened to Robert Kennedy jr. Uh, when he was flying a few years ago and, and into a bank of clouds and he hadn't Had instrument training, I understand, and him and his wife were killed in that plane crash. So that's why airplanes obviously have instruments. Um, They're equipped so the pilot is not disoriented. What we have here in this Hebrew church, and we're going to go to Hebrews, is we have a church that's disoriented and they're facing persecution. And they're facing the potential of catastrophic, uh, of doctrinal I should, doctrinal catastrophe. That's how I want to say it. Because they are a group of people who have become Christians. Jews have become Christians and now they're persecuted. Some have lost their homes. Some have been put in jail. Nobody's shed blood at this point yet, but eventually they will, down the line. And they are wondering, some of them are wondering, is Jesus worth it? Or should we go back into Judaism? Should we go sacrifice animals? Should we go to the temple? Should we have the high priest? Should we, should we, should we? we all the formal arrangements around the law. Should we do that again? Or has Jesus really who he says he is? And did he accomplish what he said he would do? And they're, they're torn. Some of these people are really torn by that in the midst of this persecution. Because if they go back to Judaism, there probably would be less persecution for them than if they're Christians. Is Jesus greater than Moses? Is he greater than the temple? Is he greater than our high priest? Is he greater than all the sacrificial animals for our salvation? And so these people, some of these people were completely disoriented. And they were running on perceptions and traditions. And they were failing to use the God-given instruments that we have. The New Covenant. So turn in the Bible, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6. How do we navigate a life of weightiness? A life when things weigh us down. How do we move through that? Whether it be health issues, job issues, family issues, whatever it is. How do we navigate that by using God's instrument in our lives? We're going to go to eventually, and let's just read it now. This is the end of the story, Paul Harvey said. We're going to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. So look at those. This is the end of the story. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek now every verse and every chapter and every book of the bible has a context and before you can make proper interpretation we have to understand The context. We are really good at selecting a verse here or a verse there without understanding the context from where that verse came from. For example, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there I will be also. The context of that verse is discipline, church discipline. It has nothing to do with us meeting like this. He is present, that's, that we know that, but it doesn't come from that verse. And so it's important to understand the context of these verses and what the writer, we're looking for what, what is the writer here to these Hebrew Christians, what is he trying to convey to them? What is his goal here? And so right here you look at verse 9, that's where we're going to start. There's a, there's a context because there's a connection. He says in verse 9, though we speak in this way. Those are connecting words. So we ask, speak in what way? We go to the verses ahead of that. He's talking about apostasy. He's talking about turning away from Christ. Don't turn away from Christ. Don't go back into Judaism. If you do, you'll be crucifying the Savior all over again. And there is no hope for you outside of Christ so he's saying though we speak in those way in this way and then he goes into what he's gonna say later and if you then if you go to up to chapter in verse 1 of chapter 6 there's a therefore therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ well why Why do we leave the elementary doctrine of Christ? He tells us in verse 14 of the previous chapter. He says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines. We want to be mature here. We don't want to go back. We want to go forward here. And if you connect all these words in Hebrews here, there are tons of connecting words, therefores and fours and phrases like, though we speak in this way, it connects you all the way back to chapter 1. And chapter 1 is the enthronement of Christ. In chapter 1, there are no commands given. None. It's all about the exaltation of Christ. And seeing his enthronement, because his work is completed and finished and satisfactory to the Father, therefore he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So the whole book connects back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. But that's not the end of the story. The whole book connects all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay, let's start with verse 9 here. Hebrews 6, verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We feel sure that you are not like what I just talked about in the first few verses. That you are not going to go back, but you are going to move forward. That you are trusting Christ with your salvation. That you are not going back to sacrifice animals. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, animal sacrifices ended. And any animal sacrifices after that were for naught. They were useless, no more. And he says, we, we feel sure here, beloved, in your case, there are better things. So we have to ask the question, what are the better things that he's talking about? And he tells us partly here, he says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And that's what he's going to unfold in these verses. Some of the things that belong to our salvation. Verse 10, he said, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. They're still serving the saints. He said, and God isn't blind to that. God knows what's happening in your church. He knows what's happening in your life. He, he knows you are bearing fruit. He knows you are being persecuted at times. He knows about the doubts that you may have, whether Christ's work is really sufficient or not. He knows and not understands that. He knows that in the midst of all of that, you are, you are visiting people in prison, and some of you have lost your houses because of that. Because you're identifying with Christians and the government has taken away your homes. He said God knows that. He sees that. He he understands that. He's not unjust here to overlook all that. And then he says in verse 11, and he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants everybody to have the same diligence, same striving, same earnestness of, of fruit bearing and hope and, and all the way to the end of their lives and not to stop and want to go back. And it really comes down to this. He wants them to keep trusting that Christ is God and that his life and work is all sufficient for their salvation. All the way to the end. And the result, he says, is full assurance of hope until the end. You know, I like to ask the Bible questions. So here's another question. What is the hope? Full assurance of hope. What, what is the hope? that he's talking about. Can we narrow, in these passages, can we narrow that hope down and be able to leave here and say, this is the hope that he's talking about. Let's go on to verse 12. So he has a so that. So that you. So he said, we want you to have this full assurance of hope to the end. And why? He says, so that you may not be sluggish. Earlier in Hebrews, he says, don't drift. It's easy to drift. Don't drift. Don't be sluggish. Consider Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. Ponder who Christ is and what he has done. All of those are commands throughout Hebrews. Because he says, we don't want to be sluggish here. Helga and I don't want to be sluggish in the end. We don't want that. I don't ever want to be sluggish. It can easily get sluggish. I get sluggish. I don't want to be sluggish here. I don't want to drift in any way in the end. And then he says here, he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants us to imitate people. And he wants us to imitate people like the ones that are coming up in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith. a whole list of people there that are, that he says here, um, that through faith and patience inherited the promises. You know, there are people, I love to read about people who through faith inherited the promises of God. And I have a I have a whole bunch of uh, books by John Piper on with are that are biographies of people. Short biographies. It's great. He he writes biographies really well of, of people. I have five or six books of this. And I love reading about those people. They're long gone. They've they've been tested in the faith all the way to the end of their lives. Some of them persecuted, some of them, you know, the the reformers. Those guys, every one of them were sick physically. (laughs) They had more health problems than you can shake a stick. And they pursued, and they pursued, and they continued, and eventually they inherited the promises by faith. I like to read about that. Then you have have, have guys like John Patton going to the New Hebrides Islands. His diary to me is is the best diary I have ever read. And David Brainerd, that's another great diary. Missionary to the Indians here in in North America. Um, David Brainerd, the the only reason we know anything about David Brainerd is that he knew Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Edwards published David Brainerd's, paid for the publishing of David Brainerd's diaries. Jonathan Edwards brought, David Brainerd had tuberculosis. He died about 27, 28 years old. David, Jonathan Edwards brought David Brainerd into his home, and, Dave, and Jonathan Edwards' daughter cared for David Brainerd until he died. And then, it wasn't long after that, that Jonathan Edwards' daughter died from tuberculosis. Probably from taking care of David Brainerd. But these are people who persevered to the end. David Brainerd talks about when he went to share the gospel with the Indians in North America, he's laying in the forest, that's dark as can be, obviously no lights, he's laying there and he's coughing up blood. On his way, and he continued on to share the gospel. (laughs) It's amazing. And and the writer Hebrews says, imitate these people. These people aren't sluggish. They're not drifting. You want to emulate them. You want to imitate them. Okay, let's go on. He says. so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. This word for, first word, it should be the first word in your translation. For, if you don't have a for there, Throw it away. (laughs) For is an incredibly important word in the Bible. It's such a little word, and yet it carries such significance of truth. It's gar in the Greek, and it means properly assigning a reason or an explanation to something. So he's trying to assign a reason for... He goes here to say, or because. And this, th- this word occurs over a thousand times in the New Testament. It has extreme significance. In verse 12, it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we have to ask the question, how do we inherit the promises? He says, for or because God made the promise. That's the first thing. We inherit it because God made that promise. God made a promise, and that guarantees the outcome of that promise. So if you follow the line of fours and therefores in this this, uh, book of Hebrews, they all point back to chapter 1 in Christ's enthronement because God is because Jesus is God and because Jesus made purification for our sins and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty because God made a promise and that promise is, we see that promise fulfilled in chapter one of Hebrews where Christ is enthroned because God made a promise and that promise was fulfilled And we see that ultimate fulfillment right there as Jesus is enthroned. God made a promise, and he made a promise to Abraham. And Christ is that fulfillment. And that makes that promise and that inheritance absolutely sure. So what does David Brainerd need when he's coughing up blood to take the gospel to the Indians? What does he need to persevere to go on? He needs the absolute assurance that the promise of God is true. And because he knows that, he continues on. If he was unsure, he would hesitate. Say, well, I'm going back and try to get well. (laughs) All right, let's go on. God made a promise, it says here, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. If I can get there. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth Shall be blessed. Right away, the blessing is to all the nations. It's not going to be just to Israel. God is not a tribal God. So, God is a God for the nations. So, the blessing to Abraham is going to the nations, for all the peoples. Now, go to chapter 15, Genesis. Verse 1 says this. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, or he had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham. He's going to bless him, and that's going to bless all the nations through his offspring. All the families of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. Now I want us to go to Galatians and see how Paul interprets the the word offspring here. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you through your, your offspring. Galatians chapter three, verse uh, fifteen. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And he quotes, and to your offspring, who is Christ? So the offspring that God was talking about with Abraham wasn't his genealogy. It was, and, and all those offspring that were produced, it is Christ, the offspring, that would bring the new covenant, that would be the fulfillment of the promise that he gave to Abraham. So he makes a promise to Abraham, Abraham, your offspring and it's Christ, is going to be the one who's going to bless the nations. And he makes that promise, and he makes it with an oath. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews. So, Verse 13 says, So when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater to whom to swear. So he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what he said. Okay? And it's going to be through the offspring of Christ. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Now, how did Abraham (laughs) obtain the promise of Christ? It says he waited patiently, and he obtained it. That's a strange phrase, I think. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Let's just start with verse um, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is nullified and the promise is void. So Hebrews, if you turn away from Christ, then... The promise is void to you. There's no promise to you. Verse 15 here, he says, For the law brings wrath, but when there is no law, there is no transgressions. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he was When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So here's Abraham He did not weaken in his faith. He trusted God. He was fully convinced, fully convinced that God would do what he said he was due. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, be fully convinced that God made a promise. He kept that promise. It's fulfilled in Christ. Don't go back or don't be sluggish or don't drift. But that doesn't fully answer the question, how did Abraham, who waited patiently, obtain the promise? We have to go to John chapter 8, and Jesus tells us, And we have to go all the way to verse 56. John 8, 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And he Was glad. Abraham saw by faith the Messiah in the distance and the numerous blessings that would flow from Christ and his coming as Messiah. It was an an incredible instance of faith for Abraham. And to the readers of the Hebrews, it should be encouragement to them to persevere the course. To avoid the dangers of apostasy and drifting and, and sluggishness. If Abraham persevered when the appearances of what they saw, of what he saw initially, were so much against the fulfillment of that promise, but I don't even have a child. How can it come through my air? If he was so convinced in the promises of God and that they would be fulfilled... If he could persevere, then Hebrews, you can persevere. And Christians, we can persevere because we have such a clear light and we have and we can see the distinct promises of the gospel. So we should be persevering in the faith. In the midst of dark appearances and what we see. So, when Helga and I go to this funeral this week, we should be persevering in the midst of dark appearances, in the midst of pain and suffering and heartache and, and loneliness and all of that. We should be persevering through this and encouraging others to persevere to the end. Let's go on to verse 16 in Hebrews. Verse 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final, final for confirmation. So when I entered the military, I had an oath. And here's part of the oath. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And at the very end of that, I said, so help me, God. Swearing by something greater than me. That's what the writer says. That's what we do as people. We swear by something greater than us. But what does God do? There's nothing greater than him. It's impossible for God to swear by something that's greater than himself. So what does he do? Let's go on. Verse 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's the Hebrews, that's us, he wants to show us, he wants us to be convinced of these promises and that we are heirs of those. So when he... Wanted to show that uh, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God makes an oath. What kind of an oath did he make? Well, he made an oath like they made in the ancient world. It's called the cutting of the covenant with Abraham. In biblical times, they would cut in these animals apart, like like they did with Abraham cut them in half, and the two people who made a covenant, they would walk between those animals that they made, that they, that they cut, and that would be their oath to each other, that I will keep this promise, even to blood. That's the oath. So God made this promise to Abraham, but th- there's a problem with it. The problem is, that God didn't let Abraham pass between the animals. Only God passed between the animals. The animals were cut, Abraham was on the sidelines, and God passed between the animals by himself. So this covenant is not like the covenants between two equals. This is a totally different covenant. A covenant that's unseen before. God binds himself by a solemn oath with this covenant that he will fulfill the promise. No matter what you do, Abraham, I will do my part and fulfill the covenant. So the writer of Hebrews says that God guaranteed the covenant with this oath, this cutting of the covenant. He guaranteed it with his character. He guaranteed that, that he, because he is God, he would fulfill the promise. It is God who anchors his promise and promises. He anchors his promises by his own character. And he will fulfill them. Look at verse 18. He says, verse 16 says, he guaranteed it with an oath, verse 17, so that by two unchangeable things in which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So God desires that we know convincingly that his promises are kept. He guaranteed it with a promise. He guaranteed the fulfillment with the cutting of the oath so that we who flee for refuge might have strong encouragement of the hope that is set before us. And that's the end goal. I want to have strong encouragement of this hope out there that is set before us because God made this promise to Abraham, and now it's all the way fulfilled. There, it's kept, and He guaranteed it with two unchangeable things. One, God made the promise. God Himself made the promise. Here, man did not make the promise. He didn't. God didn't leave it a subject to time or circumstance or opposition, or anything. God made the promise to Abraham, and Abraham, no matter who keeps this covenant, I'm going to keep it. And it will be fulfilled. But God, the immutable, the unchangeable one, fulfills it. The great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the sovereign above all sovereigns, The one with all knowledge and majesty and all power. He can do it. He is Yahweh. He is Elohim. He is Adonai. He made the promise, and that promise is absolutely sure. The other unchangeable thing is, it says here in this verse, it is impossible for God to ever lie. Let's go to Psalm 89. Verse 34 says, God is speaking, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Okay, so this book went forth from the lips of God. Paul says it's God breathed. And and God says right here, I'm never going to alter this, ever. There's no change to this. And verse 35 says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God doesn't lie. He swears by his holiness, which is pure and perfect, unlike our holiness. And now let's go to Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. The promise goes before creation and is now fulfilled. So I I want this to grip us. It's God who has made the promise to Abraham. It's God's character of pure holiness that cannot lie. Every word of the Bible Every single word is out of the mouth of God. It is true and it is sure. When everything else around us is in the age of relevance, this is absolute and right and true and sure. So we ask at the beginning, how do we navigate life's up and downs and through the weaknesses to the end without caving in? On every promise of God, that's how we navigate And now we're coming to the absolute fulfillment of that promise. All right, let's get to the end here. Verse 18, the writer says, there is a hope set before us. Verse 19, now I gotta go back to Hebrews. Verse 19 says, we have this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place or into the inner place behind the curtain. So there's a hope that's set before us. A hope that we can hang on. We can hang on by faith. And this hope has two parts to it here. The first part the writer says, it's a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And not only is it an anchor of the soul, it's an anchor of the soul that is actually able to enter into the holy of holies, into the very presence of a holy, pure God in heaven who is a consuming fire and that anchor is not consumed. It's not burnt up. And that's the picture for these Hebrew Hebrew Christians. It's an anchor and it's holding solid our soul. So what is it holding our soul from? It's holding our soul from caving. <laughs> it's holding our soul from apostasy. It's holding our soul from losing it. It's holding us from shipwrecking our faith. It's holding us from failing to enter eternity in the end. It's holding us from failing to be able to navigate in this world, in the hard, difficult times of life. That's what it's holding. It's holding us there. So it's an anchor. It's an anchor of hope. So what is the hope that is so competent to keep our souls from destruction and apostasy? What is that hope? Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, on our behalf, having become a high priest, after, <clears throat> high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the hope. <laughs> Jesus is the anchor. He is the one who is holding us. He is God's promise to Abraham now fulfilled for us. He is the anchor of hope, and and Romans very clearly tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's absolutely nothing. Go to John chapter 10. You talk about assuring verses out of verses out of the mouth of Jesus John chapter 10 verse 27 Jesus says my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus, the anchor, he's holding our souls as a ship is held in a storm. But he's an anchor that's not going to be moved. He's an anchor that's not going to let go. So he has grasped our redeemed by the blood of the Lamb's souls, and he will never let go, ever. But there's a second part to this. And the second part is working simultaneously with Jesus, the anchor, holding our souls. And the second part of this, go back to Hebrews, He says at the very end, he says where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, this is verse 20, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So at the same time that Jesus the anchor is holding firmly our souls in his hands close to his heart, he is functioning as high priest, a high priest above and beyond all other high priests. He is is a high priest in the order of that strange guy in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, with no beginning and no end. Jesus has no beginning and no end because he is God. He is high priest forever, the scripture says here. It's not going to stop. He has entered into the holy of holies, into the perfect presence of God with a perfect sacrifice of his precious, perfect blood, and he did it on our behalf. And he's holding us there. Hebrews 10 says, describes it like this. He entered once for all into the holy of, holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I love to think about the sufficiency of the death of Christ. The sufficiency of his blood for our salvation the sufficiency of his life for our righteousness given to us so not only is he holding us he's interceding for us moment by moment before the father he's clutching our souls to his heart and at the same time he's interceding to us paul says in romans that, God is, that Jesus is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says, He always lives to make intercession. <laughs> He's alive to make intercession for us. So God made a promise, and he made a promise of hope. He cannot lie. The promise of hope is fulfilled in his son Jesus. Perfect life, perfect sacrifice, substituted for us. Jesus, the all-powerful God, grasps our souls, firmly clutching them as an anchor to his heart, pleading his case of our redemption with his precious blood before the Father, pleading our preservation, and he prays in John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus, anchor, high priest, holding, and interceding. Amen. Let's pray.